realizing that there is not a necessity to be understood. And that's a real relief because, you know, I barely understand a flush toilet. You know, it's just, it's like I talking to students and talking about Wallace Stevens and they say, I don't really like Wallace Stevens. And I said, why? And they say, because when I read him, I feel dumb. And I said, well, I feel dumb too, but it's a familiar feeling. When Dean Young took the stage in October of 2012 to read from his Cobber Canyon Press collection, Bender, we were incredibly fortunate to bear witness to his humorous, irreverent, and fearless poetry for many reasons, but because it was his first event after a heart transplant. In his book, The Art of Recklessness, Young once wrote that when it comes to writing, quote, the blood may be fake, but the bleeding must be real, end quote. It comes as no surprise then that there is real risk in the poems you'll hear in this episode. Poems which confront the poet's own experience living with a degenerative heart condition, a condition that Young sadly died from in August of 2022. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. You're listening to Salon Air, a collection of talks and readings from the world's best writers from 36 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. The greatest joy of Young's poems is the challenging slope of his writing, how it lifts us up, takes us into the mountain only to descend thanks to gravity and the slipperiness of his language in sheer, exhilarating terror. As the speaker in the poem entitled Dear Reader Entreats, quote, please take this, it is your lift ticket. Young's work was deeply influenced by the New York School poets and the Surrealists, but he was also sneakily kind of a romantic poet, a lyric poet of transcendence and ecstasy. Following the reading, Young joined me for a conversation in which he detailed his approach to composition, curation, and the physical act of writing, touching on the complicated and trying task of writing after a heart transplant. Deeply evident to anyone who had the honor of listening to Young speak on the matter is the profound sense of resilience, optimism, and beauty which he brought to this and every unexpected turn in his incredible life. This is Sal on Air. Thank you. Hard act to follow, huh? <laughs> this is called The Bewilderness Explorer. Maybe you don't know what it's like to come out of your gate in the morning and to be face to face with a deer, to enter a staring contest with a buck, go eye to eye with a doe, or even hold a fawn's dewy glance. Maybe you just sit in the cauldron ladling broth over your head or stick your key in the ignition and your car explodes. I've seen a lot of you in movies, but never in person. What I've seen in person is a sideshow guy who was advertised as having three eyes, who walked through the modest crowd selling pictures of himself. So up close you could tell only one eye worked. The second was an oozy mess, and the third, in Cyclops' position, was just a dent, 
a grievous, scarred-over dent with an eye painted on. So you bought a picture anyway. And Mickey Mantle, at $50 an autograph, who was drunk and seemed about to cry between the ruination of his knee and a liver transplant. And now this dear, both of us taking a while to realize we mean no harm, probably only a few seconds, but it feels like hours, the way time slows when you're waiting for your wife or the dryer or the car to explode in, the de in that desert silence before an atomic breeze in your cochlea that might be God's coldest decree, the decomposing wish of all things becoming sand, baffled across the empty plains without whimper, bang, or plan. And that's some heavy shit to share with anyone when you're just trying to munch some leaves, then spend the whole afternoon napping in shadows if you can avoid getting killed crossing the road. <laughs> Lives of the Poets. To you, Walt Whitman has probably always been dead. But to me, he died just yesterday after many pages. His body a mess, large portions nearly empty, although it was the other parts filled with masses beyond the understanding of the 19th century that prevented him from becoming a wind instrument or a kite. But sometimes he's still a whole orchestra onto himself, as if every word he ever wrote was being said simultaneously, although a little muffled, maybe just a squirrel landing on the roof of another world, or a vacuum cleaner hose shifting among the overcoats of another world. Because the life of a poet is always passing from one world to another, dream to dream, tissue through tissue, red stain upon the beach. My friend's solution is to read me another version of Paradise over the phone. At first, the gods lie around slurping the fruits of the tree of knowledge until they're full. But because this is Paradise, they're never full. But what they get is stupefied with the silk and slither of it the wet going down. Oh, how they long to click some ammo in, wreck a bicycle, anything but every greasy second unhinged, every outburst musical, as if all singing didn't come from singeing. So finally, they grow intolerable to themselves. They start to stink and shun each other until finally, because this is paradise, it's finally all the time. Finally, they fall like frostbit peaches back into the mud, the furnace, into the lucky ones, the bodies of caterpillars who spin from themselves the finest filaments. It's hard to believe how strong silk is, considering it comes from a bug's butt. 
And often it's quite instructive to try ripping some parachute, some net, some flouncy party dress, to try and break these bonds that bind us, oh my lord, im-fucking-possible. My friend has almost nothing to say about the woman he loves who stole his furniture. Nothing about the singing children you can't avoid this time of year. I hate singing children. <laughs> As if anything deserves to be so unugly. As if we all aren't on one end or another of the spear. Ants climbing over ants, geese wading through frozen fields. My friend has even less to say about Walt Whitman. Odic force or cosmic wanker? Almost everything he revised, he made worse. Certainly his family was a handful. Mom suffered from rheumatism of the leg, variously diagnosed as vaporous ejectum, crunching womb, salt in the clusters. Then she died, still unable to punctuate sensibly. And Eddie, retarded, mostly confined younger brother, came to resemble the fly-leaf portraits of the bard more than he did himself those waning years. Eddie, however, responded only to sweets. Let into his room those waning years, you'd be greeted by the cosmos enveloped in white sheets. Unable to get up from the piles of papers, he forbade his housekeeper, who would have to sue for back wages, to touch. Little wound, little wound, what is it you wish to say? You think you'll recover, but you'll never recover. I was drunk when I got here. I plan on being drunk when I leave. They threatened me that you would be kind. Uh, thank you. I'm sure many of you in the audience, because this is a poetry reading, are poets and, and have, give readings, uh, have given readings. But for, for those of you who aren't and haven't, this is really nerve-wracking. <laughs> I like that you're in the dark, though, because talking to the dark is one of our, our job descriptions. <laughs> this poem called Hole, Hole in It is, is it's sort of set off about uh, my wife and, and, and my dog dying. And uh, one of the things that, that I noticed uh, is that, you know, people very very kind to us. Uh, most of our friends and, and social circle are, are embittered, sophisticated intellectuals, uh, <laughs> who I assume that I'm among now. Uh, and they can be politely called non-believers. But the funny thing happened when, when uh, uh, our dog died, we started getting cards from, from people that you know, show a, a doc 
going off to the end, into the sunset, <laughs> and 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 people telling us that you know she's still with us, or or that that she's waiting for us in the beyond. <laughs> and I've come to the conclusion that uh, a lot of educated people they don't really believe that 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 humans have souls, but they're absolutely certain dogs do. <laughs> This is called a hole in it. After the dog has to be put to sleep, you can feel the hole when you walk into the library by the mural of the baby Achilles being dipped into the numbing, numbing sticks, but also when you walk into the forest. Everything has a hole in it, not just Monday or cut roses on the third day or Sears. Everything is a tornado with a pupil so the tears can get out and the dreams in, which is why you keep having to buy wine glasses your friends keep breaking, doing their good deeds of flying around and trying to clean up. And it's as if you haven't seen them for years. You're an echo in a well, and the dog's still looking at you like you're a toy, because of the hole in your chest like the bottom of a flower pot. Sadness sticking out like fuzz off a dandelion. The filaments waving like kelp around a deep sea rift. A hole like the center of the universe. A long tube like the dimensions in knots. Like flight paths around Chicago or Mozart. Sometimes the hole makes breath into music, and if the fingers get involved, it's complicated. But something simple still gets through, like food or melody or love. Like a pipe in a mansion, a breeze through the ballworks, a, a throat connecting mouth to lungs and intestines. Like a wick, only hollow, but that's still where the flames attach. new book. Uh, and I really want to thank everybody at Copper Canyon. They have been so incredibly good and supportive to me. Uh, they, Michael in particular, sort of came into my life at a very, very dire time and was very, very encouraging and, and just enormously helpful to me and, and my wife, Lori and just extraordinarily generous and supportive of, of this book and, and the previous book, uh, Fall Higher, that they published. Uh, one of his great ideas where we were talking about like putting a palm on the back cover of the book and the convention of it is to put a palm that's in the book on the back cover. And he thought, well, why don't we put a palm on the back cover that isn't in the book? And uh, I said, great idea. Uh, and I had this new palm. So that, that makes me feel doubly good that the, the book is primarily a book that looks backwards. But 
In the back, it looks forward. <laughs> and uh, somebody was kind enough to come up to me before the reading and say, say that he, he, he read this poem and he almost understood it. Uh, <laughs> So I, of course, said I must be slipping up. Uh, <laughs> it's called Street of Sailmakers. It's not easy turning into smoke, not easy blowing away, because even if the mind is an amaryllis, it still struggles like a moth in a spider web. Because the futility of cathedrals is more beautiful than heaven, when he wasn't hearing what he wanted, Monk, mid-song, would kick his sideman off stage until it was just him and the damn audience wondering who was next. When my mother died, I was far away and got farther, a rectangular shadow on stilts. Hello, commodious sky, you look high on fumes. How many times must I drop bulbs into a hole and still not know how to be joyous? Years of washing dishes, watching sunsets and insects, and still no easier to see what's written in the dark. Little shiver, I want to preserve you. Rosebud, I'll try to hold you forever in my mouth. Any questions so far? <laughs> this is called Delphiniums in a Window Box. And the thing about this title, those of you who are gardeners probably know that delphiniums are, is a really, it's the wrong flower to put in a, a window box. <laughs> Every, sun's, every sunrise, sometimes strangers' eyes. Not necessarily swans, even crows, even the evening fusillade of bats. That place where the creek goes underground, how many weeks before I see you again? Stacks of books, every page. Characters rage and the poet's strange contraption of syntax and song. Every song, even when there isn't one. Every thistle, splinter, butterfly over the drainage ditches. Every stray. Did you see that meteor shower? Every question, conversation, even with almost nothing. Cricket. Cloud, because of you, I'm talking to crickets, clouds, confiding in a cat. Everyone says, come to your senses, and I do, of you. Every touch electric, every taste you. Every smell, every burning sugar, every cry and laugh. Toothpick samples at the farmer's market, Every melon, plum, I come undone 
undone. Changing genres. I was satisfied with haiku until I met you. <laughs> Jar of octopus cuckoo's cry, 575. But now I want a Russian novel, a 50-page description of you sleeping, another 75 of what you think staring out a window. I don't care about the plot, although I suppose there will have to be one. The usual separation of the lovers, turbulent seas, danger of decommission in spite of constant war, time in gulps and glitches passing, squibs of threnody, a fallen nest, speckled eggs somehow uncrushed, the sled outracing the wolves on the steps, the huge glittering ball where all that matters is a kiss at the end of a dark hall. At dawn, the officers ride back to the garrison, one without a glove. The entire last chapter about a necklace that can't be worn, inherited by a great niece, along with the love letters bound in silk. I heard a, a, a reading a while ago by the wonderful, the great poet Mark Strand, and before he took a drink of water, he said, Strand drinks. the brutal filament inside a glow. I was thinking last night, I was thinking how last night my wife screamed in her sleep, I'm sorry I ever married you. <laughs> when I shook her awake, she said, not you, Alfred. <laughs> Who the hell is Alfred, I said. Obviously the wrong tactic. <laughs> I already know about the drummer I felt sexually inferior to. Even when I broke the good china and climbed on the roof naked and painted a very crude swordfish on the wall. <laughs> he was sort of famous, or at least in a sort of famous band, so I got all their CDs and couldn't even hear any drumming. <laughs> I guess he was that good. I felt like a radiator landed on me. Birds started to talk to me, and not out of friendliness. <laughs> Even when they asked directions, it was hostile. I'd spend, oh, nine hours in the grocery store and look down in my cart, and there's nothing but some run-down kohlrabi. Don't say a damn thing, I'd say to the kohlrabi. Suddenly, I couldn't catch my breath. 
Pain shot through me like a jellyfish thrown in a fan. Whoever was on the other side of the door started turning the knob. The doctor burst in, but kept his back to me, just stood there shaking and sobbing while I sat on the table in a paper wrapper trying to fill the world with light. This isn't half as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> the, these poems are, are listed in alphabetical order by, by title, but surprisingly, that doesn't help me find anything. Realizing <laughs> that. I'd much, maybe the, the next book, I'm going to organize them by size of the letters. <laughs> I, I worked in a, a bookstore years ago, and it was in, in Berkeley, and it was a, a kind of academic bookstore. And, you know, academics are, as, as you know, very kind and understanding people. And, <laughs> who basically thought that every book in the store was wired to my genitals. And, and they'd come in and say, you know, I'm looking for a blue book. <laughs> the rhythms pronounce themselves then vanish. After they told me the CT showed there was nothing wrong with my stomach, but my heart was failing, I plunked one of those weird $2 tea balls I brought in China, and it bobbed and bloomed like a sea monster and tasted like feet. And I had at this huge chocolate bar I bought at Trader Joe's and didn't answer the door even though I could see it was UPS. And I thought of that picture Patty took of me in an oval frame. Sweat itself is odorless, composed of water, sodium chloride, potassium salts, and lactic acid. It's bacteria growing on dead skin cells that provides the stink. The average lifespan of a human taste bud is seven to 10 days. Nerve pulses can travel up to 170 miles per hour. All information is useless. The typical lightning bolt is one inch wide and five miles long. This is called Sky Below. And you'd think this poem would have been in a book called Fall Higher, but... <laughs> Sky Below. Maybe it doesn't hurt to be a constellation. Or a swan, even though it takes the whole day to get out of the shell. Trees seem okay, unless, unless something happens to them. But something is always happening to them. Our shield against the cruelty of this world 
might as well be moth-wing dust. So it can take some resistance, like not getting on a plane you're supposed to. Everyone's expecting a lot from you, and the boss's disappointment can make the cupcakes after the meeting taste like lint. It's common to feel ruined. God says, you call that a garden? <laughs> things, like that, things like that happen to the mind, and the body can't believe it. A sailboat leans way over to hurry, but sometimes sinking is faster. We love each other, but then it's the same circular bullshit. The yard fills with lily of the valleys, then a neighbor leaves her dog out in the rain. Things like that happen to the body, and the mind can't understand. Maybe you look back at the house you just left, and people are dancing in devil masks. It's okay to want to let everything go, to lie down in the sky. It's normal your mother gives you migraines. And, and to wake up in the middle of the night, unable to tell if you're upside down. I'm going to read one more poem. And then there'll be a, a short interval of polite applause. And I'll go over there and sit in that chair. And Rebecca will come out and sit in the other chair. And you'll be able to look at our crotches. <laughs> Thank you. You've you've been a, a really uh, <laughs> you've been a really marvelous group of people to to read to. Three years, I might do another one of these. <laughs> this is called One Story. It's kind of the thing about. Uh, poetry readings, which I always find terrifying. One of the reasons I love poetry is poems, they end. Uh, you know, the line ends, the stanza ends, the poem ends. And when you see a poem on, on a page, you immediately know what you're in for. But it's like you're at a poetry reading when the poet says, I'm going to read you a poem in, in sections. And, and, and when he or she says four, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're going into the infinity. Uh, so this poem does involve turning a page, but just once. <laughs> one story. In one story, the coyote sings us into being. The self is either a single arrow shot into the sun or a long squiggly thing wet at one end. If someone were to rip the roof off and look down on us, we'd look like lice on a tribal mask. Now Lorca, there was a poet. 
the disordered strength of the curved water, he wrote shortly before he was shot in the head. Maybe distorted. We know he held hands with a schoolteacher also shot, and how that last hour he'd sure, he was sure he'd be shot and sure he'd be released. At the last moment, Van Gogh slashed crows across the wheat field. Winter is scary enough, but to follow it with spring, God must be demented. He must spend a lot of time out in the cosmic downpour. I mean, what would you do if you had to create beauty? I'm afraid I'd start screaming the most irksome forms of insects coming from my mouth. I'm afraid I'd come up with death. On my desk is a paperweight, a copse of glass flowers inside. In the last few months, my father amassed a collection of paperweights. He knew he was going to disappear. Finally, my mother said, take a couple. I don't think I have the proper papers to wait. The other is a pewter frog. It was May, I was 19, writing a paper on Hamlet for a professor who'd hang himself. I remember the funeral director asking my sister and me if we wanted to see my father one last time. I thought for a moment it was a serious offer, but he was talking about a corpse a corpse in makeup. But this year, I will get it right. I will stare at a single branch for all of May. I will know what it's going through, at least on the fructifying surface. In May, he bought a yellow suit he wore just once. In May, I will listen to the bark whimper and split, the blossoms blink from sleep. I will haunt the town I've haunted for years, turning the corner of Sixth and Grant, seeing myself just ahead in that ratty jean jacket, sleeve to ripped to, ripped to fit over the cast. A few pains remain, become for, formalized, enacted in dance, but I'm careful not to catch myself. He might want to get me high in the middle of the day. I might have work to do. I might be going to the ash I planted over my dead cat years back behind the garden where Nancy lost the ring my father made from a quarter during the war. She will be sobbing, digging among the infant tomatoes. It's okay, I will say, and she will nod and vanish. It's all right, I will say, and my cat will cease mewing beneath the earth. Thank you. We'll return for the rest of the event with Dean Young in a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about an event coming up with Terrence Hayes on May 2nd. Winner of the National Book Award for Lighthead, Hayes will discuss and read from his latest poetry collection, So To Speak. Exploring ideas of fatherhood, history, and longing, Hayes' work dazzles with remarkable openness and remarkably restless humanity. 
Tickets are available now for both in-person and online attendance at lectures.org. And now, more from Dean Young. Did you say to look at our groins? Sorry? Did you, did you say to look at our groins or to look away? <laughs> <laughs> Is this your sales technique? Yeah. <laughs> Marketing at its finest? <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit more about putting the process of putting together the new and selected? How did you decide to do it in the alphabetical order? Um, what poems to put in, what, what to leave out? Well, the, the, the selection process seemed to me to be uh, you know, pretty important. So I, I did it really quickly without much thought. Um, <laughs> and then I, I knew that I didn't want it to be organized chronologically because I didn't. I couldn't recover. the The only way a chronologic a chronology could make sense is if it was actually true to the chronology of writing them. When I, I put manuscripts together, which would become books, often there'd be poems taken out, and they would be put in subsequent books. And so, it didn't it didn't make sense to me. And then there's the problem of what to do with the 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 new book, the new poems. Mm -hmm put them in the beginning, and then you have the poems, the new poems in the beginning, and then you have a kind of bump to uh, uh, the, the, the older work. And I felt what was much more interesting possibility was that, you know, I've just, I've been writing poems for a long time, and a lot of the same things come around. They're on, on a kind of mm -hmm. periodicity where, where a lot of the concerns. And I thought I could just open up different kind of conversations mm -hmm. between the poems that, as opposed to the conversations that's in the, the previous books. Mm -hmm. Were you tempted to revise as you were looking at these old poems, or do you look at them? No, I, I didn't even want to begin to start mm -hmm. doing that. I mean, once... The great thing about, about having a poem published is it sort of means that you don't have to revise it anymore. I, I like to revise, but, but I'd rather work on new stuff. I didn't want to go back. If there was a poem that I felt I'd want to change things about, uh, I just didn't include mm -hmm. it. In your composition process, how do you know when a poem is done? Is it when it's published, or is there a moment before that that... Yeah, I don't, I, you know, Auden said that poems aren't finished, they're just abandoned. Mm -hmm. uh, there is something that feels satisfying to me that I can, when I was in graduate school, I, I sort of thought of this notion that, you know, we're, we're all poets here and we're, we're all going to, to survive into eternity. But the problem is only one of our lines is going to survive and we don't get to pick that line. I call it the Sappho test. So to some extent, I, I, I put all my poems through that, where I just look at individual moments and lines. And if a poem sort of uh, uh, 
holds up under that kind of scrutiny, and if I feel that it's somehow or another making some kind of figure in some sort of emotive figure, uh, if it makes sense to me. And that's, that's different than if, it, if I can understand it. Uh, you know, sense means sense, if I feel it. Uh, uh, I shouldn't do that to myself. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 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 we all yeah. sort of g gasped with you. Um, well, a reviewer wrote that, you know, about your compositions, that they, they, that they are instinctual, improvisational. Is that how you would describe the composition process as well? Does it feel instinctual and improvisational to you? Yeah, but also I have to, there has to be some sort of, some part of it where, where I'm tracing something that seems rational to me. A trace. Mm -hmm. There may be, uh, may be a trace of an argument. There may be a trace of, of a narrative. Uh, some, some sort of, there has to be some kind of spine in it for me. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, uh, James Baldwin said once you learn how to fake sincerity, you're, you know, you've, you've got it made and to some extent once you know I work very hard to create Im improvisation mm -hmm. you know, it's very I think very hard about my improvisations <laughs> I read that you write first by hand and then by typewriter and do you feel like what happens in these different modes do different types of writing happen via these different forms of of writing. Yeah, typewriters, I, I like typewriters because it's the closest I'll ever get to playing a music instrument, musical instrument. And at that, that moment, the poem, it's both alienated from my body a little bit more than when I write by hand, but also it becomes a, more a form of music. And in particular, help, in particular, it helps me really get a sense of the, the weight of each line mm -hmm. when I type it. Where by hand, I, I'm, I'm much more open. I'm dashing by hand, and I can't type as fa fast mm -hmm. as, as uh, I, I write. So that slowing down uh, makes things more uh, meditated, mm -hmm. I think. Have you noticed a change in your writing post-transplant? Yeah, yeah, uh, it's a lot harder. That, that period just, it just stopped me. It, it stopped my brain as much as it stopped my heart. And it's been, it's been difficult for me to get going. I realize now that, that, that I'm a slower creature. My brain is slower. Uh, the way I associate it's slower. That may that may not be a bad thing. It's just it's but it's it's changed. Uh, I don't write. I'm not as prolific as I used to be. Uh, I'm going through a period of 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 real sort of disarray poetically that I haven't gone through for a while, and that's good. You know, it's it's cognitive it's, cognitive dissonances are, are always good. For one thing, it's cognitive. <laughs> and I, I feel lucky to have you know any kind of 
cognition at all. So. <laughs> when you're writing, what, what feels dangerous or risky for you when you're writing it, and how do you help yourself go towards that risk? I think of your poems as taking lots of risks all the time, and that being a sort of an inherent trait of your work. Um, how do you help yourself go, go towards that? Just not being boring. That's the one thing that, boring and quaint, I think that those are the, the, the two things that seem most like the worst things that can happen. But I, don't, mm -hmm. I don't worry about repeating myself because I've, I tell my students not to worry about repeating yourself because how can you repeat yourself when nobody's listening? And you know, you, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't really worry about that. But I do, I do worry about being being dull and mm -hmm. and and tedious. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mentioned Tony Hoagland several times in my introduction because he he's great. Um, he has several great pieces of writing on your work, and I would recommend them to to you if you're looking for for work. On, um, on Dean, but I know he's also a friend as well. Um, do you two talk about what you're trying to do as poets and, and how do you think you influence each other as poets? Um, Tony's one of, one of my best friends and, and uh, we don't really talk that much about each other's work. He's been an enormous sort of strange proponent of my work. He's, he's sort of at times very flatteringly blamed me for everything that's wrong with contemporary poetry. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I felt like he was really cutting me short. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm to blame for everything that's wrong with all poetry for all time. Uh, but we, you know, I, I, I have a very high, high regard for, for his poems. And uh, I tell him that. And, but we don't, we don't really critique each other's mm -hmm. work. Uh, I think we're, we're both at the point in our, our lives where we sort of don't really want critiques. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's too late. <laughs> you know? There's that time when, when, when there is a possibility of, of, of being influenced by, by what some, somebody says about about your work in, in fundamental ways and then just, you know, sort of not anymore. I can sort of, I, I know what Tony has, has mm -hmm. to say mm -hmm. and he can, he can hear me too, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. we, we argue constantly, but we argue about poetry. We don't really try to bring right. each other's work into it. Mm -hmm. um, what poets or poems influenced you either, you know, in that formative stage or continue to influence you? Uh, you know, the New York School, uh, Frank O'Hara, Kenneth Koch, uh, John Ashbery, huge influences on me. Uh, James Tate, Damage Solomon. Uh, uh, I think uh, I try to be in, influenced by, by Robert Haas. I, I try to be influenced by, by Keats, uh, by, by Hopkins. Uh, I try to be influenced as much as possible and 
by as many different poets as possible. Charles Wright is somebody who's, mm -hmm. Linda Gregg, great, great poet. Jack Gilbert, great poets. Uh, but I think what, what is you know, most obvious in my work is the, the New York School poets as well as the, the French surrealists. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you mentioned Tony blaming you for the downfall of contemporary American poetry and um, that it's, you know, he has said that it has created legions of little Dean Youngs. D does, that, does, it, does that pose a challenge when teaching? I mean, do you find that people come to you because they want to be like you and then do you have to find a way to no, I have no idea. help them be themselves? That, that, that bit that Tony's talking about is just utterly silly. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I know where Tony teaches and, and you know, he just he just identifies particular aspects of of, of contemporary the, the the sort of associational speed that that uh, a lot of young poets are interested in with with being my mm -hmm. my fault and it just it just shows that he has absolutely no understanding of literary history <laughs> whatsoever uh, and in general my students I don't I don't even think they've read anything I've I've written. <laughs> And that's that's fine, you know. That it's it's you know it's it's about their work and about poetry. It's it's mm -hmm. not you know I, I I think my students are so incredibly skeptical of anything I say about poetry. <laughs> um, a question from the audience. Um, this person writes: I'm curious about your writing friendship with Mary Rufel. What inspired you to do the writing swap, a poem by Mary Rufel? by you, and a poem by Dean Young, by Mary Rufel, each appearing in each other's books, and what was the experience like on both sides of that process? Probably alcohol. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had, I had this idea that, uh, Mary will probably claim it's her idea, uh, uh, but she claims that about all ideas, uh, <laughs> that, uh, it would be interesting to put a book of poems together that I would publish under my name, that all the poems would be written by other people. And I'd ask them to just write a poem. And Mary was there when, and she said, okay, let's do it. So we did it. And that's, that's all the further that project got. <laughs> and, and I'm glad because many people, you know, point to that as one of, you know, their favorite poems by me. <laughs> yeah. I just got so sick of that, I, I decided I'm, I'm not going to put it in this in bender, you know, I don't, it's true. I knew that was a danger, but I, I thought, well, maybe, but yeah. Um, a question from the audience about titles, your titles. Uh, it says, your titles make the audience laugh before knowing why. Um, you know, can you speak about this? How do you approach the titling of your poems, which hold so much at once? A title is part of the poem, so it, it's an opportunity to, to, you know, come up with a good phrase, a good, a good line. It's the first thing that's read. So I, I just try to, to, to have titles that, that have a lot of kick in them. You know, you can, you can come up with titles that are like labels, you know, a poem called Strawberries, that's about strawberries. Which, the mere idea of it makes me want to shoot myself in the head. <laughs> um, but also, I, I think, think about like the, the, the titles that are put on racehorses or, or, 
or speedboats. They're meant to impart energy and speed. And you know, one of the ways to create energy in, in, in writing uh, is by having uh, things that are far apart so that the title, uh, you know, a poem called Bird Sanctuary has really nothing to do with a bird sanctuary. So it just creates a kind of sizzle of association or possibly. And also I like, I, I like to read titles. I always read table of contents of, of poets. And you know, if I read a table of contents that says stone, uh, you know, I'm just, just dying for a title like rug shampoo or anything. You know? So it's just, a, just another chance of, you know, getting, getting paint on the brush. Mm-hmm. Does the title come first or does it come at some point during the process? Uh, sometimes there's a title over here mm-hmm. and I'm working on this poem and I say, you know, I've wanted to use this title for a while. And just... mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what is the first poem you remember ever writing? It was a, a poem that I wrote in, uh, uh, I, this is the first one I remember. I know that I was writing poems before that. I've been writing poems as long as I've been, been writing. You'd think I'd be a lot better than I am now, but, but I just haven't stopped. Uh, but I remember one in uh, fifth grade English. It was, it began, the ugly otter utters, something <laughs> like that. And uh, my English teacher, Miss Crumb, uh, re- reading the poem aloud. And I remember everybody in the class acting like, you know, I was already weird enough, so. Uh, and I could tell that she was on the brink, like either I was in trouble, flunking, or, and my friend Ron Hanna gave an interpretation of this poem. This poem, essentially, I had no idea, you know, but he gave an inter- interpretation. So it was like, oh, language has this power, this power of song and nonsense. And then I thought, well, I mean, you know, I think back now and think that maybe this singing brings things into being. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. There those fish are. And why? Because they rhyme. And that is as much about how reality is constituted. So it felt like play uh, was a, 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 a form of, of power. And also, realizing that there is not a necessity to be understood. And that's a real relief because, you know, I barely understand a flush toilet. You know, it's just, it's like I talking to students and talking about Wallace Stevens and they say, I don't really like Wallace Stevens. And I said, why? And they say, because when I read him, I feel dumb. And I said, well, I feel dumb too, but it's a familiar feeling. <laughs> Uh, what uh, visual artists or musicians do you love? Oh, uh, I love Cy Twombly. Uh, just an amazing, amazing painter. Uh, I've been listening to, to Japanese electronica uh, 
the name of the people I can't remember. Uh, there's a guitarist named Nils Klein I've been listening to a lot. And I have to say that uh, one of the things that has seriously helped me reconstitute myself after my transplant was going back and listening to Yes. <laughs> and, and my poor, dear, long-suffering wife has just, she's, she's close to the edge. With <laughs> close to no. <laughs> But really, really, it was, you know, there was a period where, where, where Yes was making incredibly complicated music. Uh, for one thing, there was counterpoint in it. And there's almost no counterpoint in contemporary music. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's still marvelous music. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not in the Rock and Roll, 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 roll Hall of Fame. Which, which in a way, cheers me. Because <laughs> if yes aren't in Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's, it's okay. Uh, speaking of art, can you please tell us about your tie? Uh, it's, a, it's a Jean Meyer tie. Uh, I have no idea what that means. Uh, it just says that there. I got it in Chicago about, oh gosh, must be 20 years ago or so. Still has a, the stain is probably... 15 years. You know, when I, when I worked in Chicago, my first job, I, I, I wore ties every, every day because it just seemed to, to help. <laughs> <laughs> Was this your first teaching job? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Loyola, at Loyola University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, last question. What word are you proud of sneaking into a poem, and what word would you never put in a poem? Wow. Stumper. I know a word that, that I'd never use in a poem uh, because, because of its, its social impact, and it's a word a white person cannot use, mm-hmm. and we all know what that word is. That's, that's kind of an easy one. Uh, Try phosphate bond. I, I, yeah, I don't know if I've done it, but it's in something I'm working on now, so that's, I'm pretty happy about that. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here. We're so honored. Thank you. It was truly an honor to host Dean Young in 2012 and to bring him back to honor his memory on the podcast today. If you enjoyed listening, we welcome you to join us in person or online for our season featuring writers like Joy Harjo, Victoria Chang, Roger Reeves, Anastasia Renee, and Terrence Hayes. Tickets are available at lectures.org. Thank you to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community, and thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air. <laughs>